Hello, and welcome to Cascadia Earthquake, the 14th episode in the Crossing Thin Ice podcast series brought to you by Actuarial Risk Management. This is Dave Ingram, and I am joined today, as always, by Max Rudolph. Today, Max will be talking about a risk from the Cascadia Earthquake Zone in northwestern U.S. This is a known fault line where there has previously been a major earthquake, but, well, I'll let Max tell you about it. We hope that the Crossing Thin Ice podcast series can help you with your ERM program. Our programs will sometimes look at particular risks, like today, and other times we'll consider different aspects of risk management practice. By the way, nothing in today's podcast is intended to be investment advice. We are here to provide educational material. We hope that you will also take advantage of our free newsletter and webcast for additional education on a variety of risk and risk management topics. Let's get started. Many people think about earthquakes and locations where events have recently occurred. California, Japan, and New Zealand come to mind for large events. St. Louis, Washington, D.C., or New York City for smaller quakes that get written about for their novelty. Full discussion for another day would consider all seismic events, including volcanic activity. Plate tectonics only became accepted about 50 years ago. Few averse processes are more important. Think of it as plates floating on the Earth's core, directionally pushed by a seafloor spreading process that splits large plates and pushes them apart. Where these plates intersect, either passing against or under each other, pressure builds up and is released by earthquakes. The ring of fire around the Pacific Ocean is a group of sub subduction zones where one plate passes under another, with both earthquakes and volcanoes common. While most have heard of the San Andreas Fault that runs north and south in California, few outside of regional property insurance writers give much thought to the risk in Cascadia. Uh, in the Pacific Northwest, where the Juan de Fuca plate is slowly moving under the North American plate. It was not discovered until the 1980s, so buildings prior to that were not built with earthquakes in mind. The last known major earthquake in that location occurred in 1700, before any European settlers had arrived in the region, and is estimated at about 9.0 on the Richter scale. The state was determined from indigenous oral histories and what had been an orphan tsunami in Japan. A ghost forest along the Pacific coast shows the impact of a sudden inundation of seawater that killed all the trees very quickly. The beach area where Lewis and Clark spent the winter of 1805 and 6 is along the 600-mile fault line expected to experience a tsunami during such a future event. The long-term mean between these strong quakes is nearly 250 years, making the next one overdue in purely statistical terms. It's a good example of what is becoming a common issue for pricing risk. Coming up with assumptions for a, a future event where there's no historical data, called an unknown known. Subduction zones provide the necessary setting for volcanoes. The Cascadia subduction zone forms several that are about an hour inland, including Mount St. Helens that erupted in 1980, and Mount Hood, which had a mild eruption about 200 years ago. In the Pacific Northwest subduction zone, the North American plate rises slowly to allow the Juan de Fuca plate to pass below. When the pressure is released, 
the resultant earthquake is expected to cause the eastern part of the area to drop by about six feet and whipsaw the part of the plate that is uh, that lies under the Pacific Ocean. It will rise and then settle back into a stable position, but only after creating tsunamis both along the American coast and across the Pacific. Deaths of over 10,000 people in Washington and Oregon are expected, and given the number of buildings that are susceptible to a magnitude 9 earthquake, that seems low. Food, clean water, and shelter will all be in short supply, with diseases like cholera possibly becoming rampant. Some areas can expect landslides and liquefaction, where the land temporarily acts like quicksand. It will take years to rebuild infrastructure and the local economy, especially west of the I-5 north-south interstate. An earthquake with magnitude potentially greater than 9.0 is a major disruption for those impacted. Similar events in the last century around the Ring of Fire occurred in Chile, 1960, Alaska in 1964, Sumatra in 2004, Japan in 2011, and Kamchatka in 1952. While the initial earthquake in the Pacific Northwest will be catastrophic, the tsunami that follows could be 100 feet tall along the American coast and nearly 20 feet tall in Asia, where similar events push several kilometers inland in Japan. The odds are greater than one in three for this type of event to occur in the next 50 years. Advanced preparations, especially if the beaches are full of non-locals, are impossible but necessary. During such an event, those who reach higher ground will live. Those who stop to help the injured, disabled, young, old, and tourists will not. Having a go bag and a plan matters, as does stockpiled supplies, food, and water. Insurers have several concerns due to earthquake exposure, from property damage, mortality, morbidity, to all the way to asset defaults. Local direct riders without reinsurance will struggle to survive due to concentration risk. The local economy will need infrastructure rebuilt, so capital infusions from institutional investors will be welcomed. Governments and aid agencies will help with necessities, but national resilience is low. There may be other crises underway that compete for resources. Earthquakes are like pandemics in one way. They are a matter of when, not if. Before we move on to part two of today's podcast, we want to tell you about ARM's ERM Advisory Services. Our ERM Advisory Team, led by Max Rudolph and myself, Dave Ingram, are available to provide a wide range of support to your enterprise risk management program. Here are two examples of recent projects. The first was on risk appetite and tolerance. Risk appetite and tolerance statements are the key linkages between ERM and com company strategy. We worked with an insurer to provide a very practical approach to setting up and updating their risk appetite and tolerance statement using examples from other insurers. We also provide an approach to linking risk appetite and tolerance to individual risk limits. The second project was an ORSA and capital adequacy project. We worked with an insurer to develop their first ORSA and provide guidance on streamlining and leveraging existing processes that supported the ORSA. In addition, we are happy to discuss your situation and how we might provide you with the help that you need to move forward 
from our decades of experience working with insurer ERM programs. You mentioned that there was a 1700 earthquake. How did scientists discover that, that earthquake that happened so long ago? Much like the the uh, Haiti earthquake uh, from a few years back, when we discovered that there had been an earthquake there in the past and that it was susceptible to earthquakes, the last earthquake was from so far before any European settlers had had come that it was it was a challenge to to really trigger it part of that is because of uh, plate tectonics you know today we talk about it as as being common but when when i was in college i i found out after the fact that the the textbooks where i read about that was the very first textbook that was written about it you know it's it's not that that old of a practice and it's it's something that kind of backed into discovering the 1700 one because there was a tsunami in Japan. It was a, it was a, a, an orphan tsunami that they didn't know where it had come from because most of their tsunamis, you know, they have a, a record of an earthquake followed immediately pretty soon after that of a tsunami. Or here was a tsunami that hit and it was a big one, but they had no uh, accompanying earthquake. And so they were able to, to pull that uh, along with uh, some other other details, and and of course you had uh, oral histories from local indigenous peoples in in the U.S. Northwest, the Indians, that you know they knew that there had been an earthquake, but nobody bothered to ask them. You know the European settlers had gone on assuming that there had not been one, uh, and that it was a, a reasonably quiet place to be, and the building codes reflected that. So uh, building codes until about 1980 you know, didn't account for, for earthquakes out there. Yeah, I guess I know that the Japanese do have a tradition of keeping very detailed records of, of things like that. I didn't realize they went back that far. Recently, uh, I, I've seen in the press uh, some folks predicting specific dates for earthquakes, particularly the, the San Andreas Fault. Uh, is that possible? Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, a the short answer. I mean, as, as I mentioned, the plate tectonics is is only fifty years old, and every time there's an earthquake or any type of seismic activity, the uh, scientists are are learning more and more about it. But we're not at a point of being able to predict earthquakes at, at this point. Perhaps at at some point we'll be able to. Not yet. There's some studies showing that there's. Uh, a high frequency sound that some animals can hear, but that's you know minutes before before an earthquake. It's not uh, early enough to really do a whole lot about it. I think people that live in this zone should have a have their go bag and and be ready to go when when one hits. So several months ago, Max, you spoke about super volcanoes, uh, and, and uh, in particular, you mentioned the Yellowstone area as being one of those super volcanoes. H- how does this Cascadia earthquake zone compare with, with with that? Well, we we think back about forty years ago to Mount St. Helens when when it erupted. A uh, super volcano would dwarf an event like that by about a thousand times. It would be much 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 worse. A previous eruption twelve million years ago covered what's now called you know locally here to to me in in the Omaha area ashfall fossil beds. Uh, where a water hole uh, was covered with ash 
and and it left an, an incredible collection of rhinos and other period specific animals and and very you know they're able to to excavate them and and learn a lot about the the period and it impacted a wide range down downwind of the of the event uh, because all that ash you know you had a thousand times as much ash as mount st helens I, I mean i was in denver the week of mount st helens and and you had ash there so think about that times times a thousand in nebraska where they had the ashfall fossil beds you had up to like eight feet of ash covering most places it was like a foot but in 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 different places it was more so an earthquake in seattle would have primarily regional physical damage but could have really international implications on the economy uh, due to the companies located in the area and their business continuity plans. I mean, you've got Microsoft, Amazon, Boeing, Starbucks, other companies up there that I'm sure have, have reflected this in their business continuity, but there's no way you can plan for, for something like that. Property insurers uh, in, uh, deal with these earthquake risks all the time. Uh, what, what do you think the impact of... of uh this would be on their models? Catastrophe or CAP models have, have been developed by several firms to, to model both everyday type risks as, as well as extreme events such as earthquakes, tornadoes, tropical storms. You know, property insurers obviously are, are aware and, and price for this risk, uh, but a Cascadia earthquake last occurred, you know, in 1700 roughly and long before we have any any data points. Uh, and, and so there's no recent events to, to really pull from, you know, using uh, current building codes and it just gets very complex. Uh, so there's, there's many fewer data points than wind and storm models. You know, you have storms regularly, you have wind storms regularly, uh, and that makes it a lot more important to use experience and foresight in, in the models to, to predict future events uh, and their financial impact. Yeah, for sure. I, I do remember having a conversation with one property insurer in that area who was really concerned about the amount of uncertainty in their in their cap models. So how, how does an earthquake like this apply to life insurers? Well, all insurers are, are likely to be impacted on, on the asset side of the balance sheet, for sure. Life insurers will see a, a regional mortality spike, mainly from a tsunami in places where the building codes are, are current. And, and there it'll impact be impacted as well. There's, there's beaches along uh, an area in, in Oregon that are, are very susceptible to the tsunami. And if those are, are filled with, with visitors who don't have a go bag, don't even know that they need a go bag, uh, there's not quick ways to get get off of those beaches. So if it hits in the summer, it'll be different than if it happens at, at night and in the winter, for example. Uh, longer term, it's likely to be a weight on the economy, which will which will impact uh, interest rates. Uh, and for life insurers, it'll get below uh, those uh, guaranteed in interest rate, uh, interest sensitive products. Uh, and one novel I read. Uh, even use such an event to push the global economy past a tipping point driven by high debt to GDP levels, that an event like that could uh, disrupt the global economy enough to, to where you get some unintended and unexpected things to happen. Well, that is certainly something to think about. A repeat of a 9.0 earthquake causing a six-foot drop of land along the fault line, accompanied by sporadic liquefaction, along with a hundred-foot tsunami, 
and it's statistically overdue. Max, thanks for that vision of destruction. At least in this case, we have some warning, and we have the information that was carefully gathered from the last event 300 years ago. If you live or work in the Cascadia subduction zone, you have doubtless heard about all this and have your go bag ready. But those of us in the rest of the country need to pay attention to this potential major disaster event and use our scenario testing tools to look at our potential losses and decide whether we need to adjust our risk concentrations in that zone. We hope that you have gained something from this episode of Crossing Thin Ice. If so, please like, subscribe, and share the link with your coworkers. Mm -hmm.